I had this here sent to me, Pastor. I just got off the phone with one of our vendors on a business call, and he asked me about our weather. He is up in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Is it dry down there in Tampa? I said that it was right now, but we recently had a lot of rain. He says it's so dry here that the Baptists are sprinkling, the Methodists are using moist wipes, and the Catholics are trying to change wine back in the water. <laughs> now that's dry. That's, that's when it's dry. You have a Bible? Turn to the book of Colossians. The book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 2. There's a Bible in front of you in the pew. And so just reach and get that Bible and turn to page 1264. 1264. Everybody wants to be a winner. Nobody likes to be a loser. You want to triumph. But to triumph, you have to have a battle. And in the battle, you're liable to get beat up. In a battle, you can actually lose in a battle. But the ultimate victory, you'll win. And I want to show you something that kind of brings all of this out. Here in the book of Colossians in chapter 2, look in verse 9. In verse 9. For in him, talking about Christ, dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. In that body that Jesus Christ had, when he lived here upon the earth, he was every bit God. He was God in the flesh. You see, there's a true and living God, but God, see, he can't die. So the only way he could pay for our sins is to come into the world and take upon a body. And in that body, he had to live a perfect life. And in living that perfect life, he lived it without sin. He had no cause to die. But because of his love for us, he took all the sin of all the world upon himself and died. Not because he had to die, but because he loved us. And he paid for all the sin of everybody in the world. And the only thing we have to do is believe that he did it for us. And he would give us as a free gift everlasting life. In verse 10 he says, and ye are complete in him. It means that you don't need anything else. Just picture for a moment, a hundred years from now, a thousand years from now, when we're all dead and out of this old world, we'll be with the Lord in a perfect body, in a perfect place, totally complete. All because of what Christ did, not because of what we've done. In other words, if it's complete, if your salvation in Christ is complete, and you don't need anything else. In other words, Jesus is not just necessary he is enough. The church, we love our church, but our church can't save anybody. No church can get you to heaven. I as a pastor may love you to death, but I can't save you. No man can save you. Nobody. You see, Christ is the Savior. We trust the Lord. You can't go wrong by trusting the only true and living God there is. So once you trust him as your Savior, you are complete in the Lord. You have all that you need. It's finished. When Christ died on the cross, he says, it is finished. It means the payment for our sins, it's over. There's no payment you have to make. You see, I do not serve the Lord to go to heaven. 
I serve the Lord because I love him. I'm already going to heaven. I'm going to heaven because 52 years ago when I was 18 years old, I trusted Christ as my Savior. That is what gets me to heaven. Nothing more. Nothing more. Now, since all those years have passed, yes, I have tried to do right, but doing right doesn't get me to heaven. It's because I am God's child and I want to please my heavenly father. I had an earthly father. My earthly father died when I was 13 years old. My earthly father was a drunk. He was a bootlegger. My earthly father beat the tar out of me. Maybe I needed it. I can't believe that, though. I just can't believe it. But anyway, I'm so thankful that I have a heavenly father, and I know that my heavenly father made no mistakes. There's no reason for me to be mad or upset with my heavenly father. So he means a lot to me. So I want to serve him because he is my father. I want to be like him. The Bible is his word. I want to know what he had to say. The Bible is God's love letter to his children, and I'm his child. I want to know what he, he wants me to do with my life. So he says here in verse 10, And ye are complete in him which is the head of all principalities and power. Now we had already talked about in chapter 1, in verse 15 through 17, how that Jesus Christ is the supreme, the creator, the architect of all creation. He is the Lord of the world. He made the world. He's in charge. He has all power. He has the right. He has the authority. Then it says he is the head of the church. That means that all of us who have trusted Christ as our Savior were born into his family. And because we're in his family, he is the head, the boss. He tells us what we should and should not do, how we should and should not live. He has earned that right because of what he did. There's only one person who ever was born into this world who lived a perfect life and has a right to tell everybody else what they ought to do and not do. Don't you despise when somebody who lives worse than you do try to point out your sins? But he has the right to because, see, nobody can point to him and say, hey, you messed up. You shouldn't have said that. That was wrong. He never sinned. So he has the right, the authority to say something to the rest of us. He earned that right. He lived a perfect life under the same law that we live under. Made of a woman, made under the law. And he lived a perfect life. Now he's talking about he is the head over principalities and powers and dominions. In verse 17 of chapter 1, it talks about Jesus Christ. He is the head over everything. Even in the mysterious, angelic world of fallen angels. And there are powers that you and I cannot see nor understand. He is the head of all of that. Every spiritual wickedness in high places that were against Jesus Christ. They thought, we finally got this man. We finally got him to mess up. We got all the people to kill him. Boy, were they victorious. I bet the wicked, mysterious, angelic world were having a heyday. They thought we finally took care of this Jesus. And notice what he says here now in verse 11. 
in whom, talking about Christ, also ye are circumcised with the uncircumcision, or the circumcision made without hands. At not putting, as he says here, in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Circumcision just means to remove the flesh. You see, I was, let me just use a simple illustration for right quick. Uh, come up here just a minute, uh, Steve. Just stand right there. And um, I want you to see this because it's a simple illustration. All right. This is my old sinful nature. You just behave now for the first time in your life. This is my old sinful nature. You see, I can't go to heaven because, see, I have this old sinful nature. Because, see, if I go to heaven and he goes with me, well, then he'll, make, he'll cause me to sin when I get to heaven. Well, God doesn't want any sin in heaven because if there's sin, then there will be sorrow there. And, and if he goes with me to heaven, then, then there'll be death and disease and destruction. He's everything that's bad. Well, that's the old sinful nature. It's everything you don't want in heaven. He is a bad man, bad man. He leads you astray. He'll lie to you, deceive you. He's everything you don't want to be. But every one of us in this room, we have an old sinful nature. So God says you need to be circumcised. What do you mean? I have to get rid of my old sinful nature. And it's called the cutting away of the flesh. So when I trusted Christ as my Savior, God separated me. From my old sinful nature. Now he's over there. He's still very much alive. He's just as bad as he's always been. But in the eyes of God. See God sees me. Separated from my old sinful nature. I now have a new birth. Born of God. Without a sinful nature. So whenever I die. See he lives in my body. In my body. The members of my flesh. And that's why when you trust Christ as Savior, it's a spiritual birth. You can't see it. So you think I'm over there. I'm over here. So God sees me separated from the first birth, and I'm now in my second birth. This is how God sees me. So when I'm in my body, you might still see my old sinful nature. Because he's just as bad as he's always been. So what I have to do is try to find a way... How can I have victory in my Christian life with this bad man living inside of me? So that's why the Holy Spirit lives within you to give you power not to let him have control of my body. Now, he lives in my body, but God doesn't want him to have control of my body. So therefore, as I grow in the Lord, then I learn how to discipline myself and to make right decisions, wise decisions. Because, see, if I listen to him, he's always whispering in my ear, telling me to do just the wrong thing. Always trying to lead me astray because he wants his own way. You understand what I'm saying? Do you understand what I'm saying? Thank you, buddy. Give him a big hand. So circumcision is the cut it away, and you have been separated from the flesh by circumcision without hands. In other words, it wasn't done physically to you as a little child, a little boy that's been circumcised on the eighth day. Now, Jesus was circumcised. His circumcision became mine. His baptism became mine. And Christ's life, his righteous life, became mine. When he died on the cross, his death became my death. And when he was buried... Uh, that was for me. When he came back from the dead, he did that for me. So his death, burial, and resurrection 
was for me because he did it for me. He paid for my sins. So what Christ did was put to my account as though I did it. I didn't really do it. He did it for me. And so his victory over sin, over the devil, over the grave, all that victory was put to my account. He was victorious. Well, me, I wasn't. I failed it. The devil got me. I got an old sinful nature. I kept listening to Stephen all the time because he was just a bad man, but he had a great influence on my life. Told me to do things wrong. It's not my fault. It's all his fault. So God says, now that you know Christ as your Savior, there's something he wants you to understand. Oh, look what he says there in verse 12. Buried with him in baptism, wherein also you are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God who hath raised him from the dead. So when God raised him from the dead and you believe he did it for you, then God, see, takes you and puts you, spiritually speaking, into the body of Christ. And if you're in the body of Christ, you're in Christ, then wherever Christ went, you went with him because you're in him. So he has risen from the dead and ascended into heaven and seated at the right hand of the Father. And that's why the Bible talks about in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3, we are seated in the heavenlies in Christ because that's how God sees you. You're in him. You're not going to heaven because of all those good things you've done. We're going to heaven because of all those good things he did. He paid for all of my sin and put his righteousness to my account. And I go to heaven on what he did. I did not earn it. I did not work for it. I do not deserve it. In verse 13, he says, and you being dead in your sins, that means to be separated from God because you are a sinner. Means you do things wrong. You're not perfect. You can't go to heaven because of your sins. See that? Man that was standing up here, uh, that's my old sin. From, because I can't go to heaven because, yeah, i got to get rid of him. If he goes to heaven with me, see, then God won't let me in because I got him. So i got to get rid of my sin. And Christ came into the world and took care of it for me. He took care of all my sins, paid for them in full. And get the last part of verse 13 where he says, Hath he quickened, that means made you alive, together with him. So when you trusted Christ as your Savior, you are joined together with the Lord and you were baptized with him into the grave. You came up out of the grave with the Lord. Now he says, because of what I did for you, walk in newness of life. I'm supposed to live for the Lord for the rest of my life, not to get to heaven, but because I'm going to heaven. And he says this in the last part, and you ought to underline these words, having forgiven you all what? Trespasses. Hath forgiven you. You mean all those bad things that I've done? He hath forgiven you of all of them. When Christ died 2,000 years ago, all of our sins were in the future. So that means he's already paid for what I've already done. But when he died, he also paid for the ones that I haven't done yet. Has he paid for those too? Of course. Because, see, if he didn't pay for those, I'm in a heap of trouble. Then i got to pay for them. So when Christ died, he paid for all of my sins once and for all, and I have eternal life. Now look at verse 14. Blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us. 
You see, God gave his righteous law, the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, mind, body, soul, and strength. And thou shalt not make images and so forth. And thou must love thy mother and father. And thou shalt not do this. And thou shalt and thou shalt not. And all, all of those laws was against me. Because you see, they were too strict. Thou shalt not commit adultery. And then Christ says later on in the New Testament, if you so much as think it, ooh, thou shalt not lie. Thou shalt not hate Man alive, I ain't got a ghost of a chance. So the law, that's perfect. Nothing wrong with it. It's just I can't keep it. It's, it's too good. It's too perfect. I'm not that way. I'm a sinner. I've come short of God's glory, short of God's perfection. So therefore, I failed. And every time God says, don't cross this line, <laughs> I did. So when God says, you transgress, you trespass, it says, Thou shalt not walk on the grass. I did. So I transgressed. I overstepped the boundary. And because of that, I am a sinner. And so God took all these things that he is keeping a record of, and he's making a list of all the things that we do that's wrong. And God took all of these things that we did wrong, and he didn't write them on a piece of paper and nail that to the cross. You see, Jesus was the one that was nailed to the cross. But look what he says there in verse 14. Blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. When he nailed it to his cross, means he nailed Jesus to the cross because all my sins that I've done, he took them all. And he died in my place, and he was nailed to the cross for me. And he paid for all of my sins. And in, in verse 15, when he was nailed to the cross, when he died, there's no doubt that the angelic underworld was probably in hysterics. We finally nailed, nailed this guy. We won. We were victorious. And then all of a sudden, there's this earthquake and Christ comes out of the grave triumphant over the devil, over principalities and powers. You see, that's why he says in verse 15, having spoiled principalities and powers. And up there in verse 10 where it says that um, he is the head over everything. Even the angelic world has no power over God, over Jesus Christ. He was over the world. He's over the church. He's over the angelic world. There's nothing that has power outside of him. Let me ask you this. Does this great God have the right, the authority, to be Lord over me? Does he have the right to tell me what I can and cannot do? Shouldn't I obey the one that created the heavens and the earth that has all this power? Look who he is. Why would I want to make God mad with me? Why would I want to defy God? I would lose. And look at the last part of verse 15 where he says, And having spoiled principalities and powers because he stole all their power away from them, they could not win. They could not beat him. Now, you know what I like a lot about camp and so forth? You get a chance to see competition. 
competition. Somebody's going to win, somebody's going to lose, but it's still a wonderful, exciting thing to watch. But, you know, there's always some kids. There's always even some adults. We'd like to stand on the sideline and just watch and watch these kids being pulled through the mud. Oh, I love it when they, somebody, somebody's got to go through the mud. I want to see who goes in the mud. I couldn't hardly wait to see whether or not, are they going to be able to pull Jonathan into the mud? Wouldn't you love to have seen that? Jonathan going through the mud. But Jonathan says, I'm not going through the mud. And you, you, you'd have to have a tank on the other end to pull Jonathan through the mud. But, you know, there's always somebody on the side that says, you know, well, what we're going to do, and, and he should have done this, and they should have done that. And there's everybody telling them what to do and how to do it and criticizing. And, you know, the world has its critics. The world has its critics. Even when it comes to church, there's always somebody. Well, that ain't the way I would have done it. Did you, did you see that mistake you made? You ever watch these Monday morning quarterbacks? I can't believe the guy was so stupid. The guy was wide open in the end zone, and the quarterback doesn't even throw the ball to him. Because when he got ready to throw the ball, five guys slammed him to the ground. I don't know why in the world he let them do that to him. I wouldn't have done that. Let me read this to you. Theodore Roosevelt once said, It's not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbled, or the doer of deeds could have done better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives violently, who errs and comes up short again and again, who knows the great enthusiasms, the great devotions, and spends himself in a worthy cause, who at best knows achievement, and who at the worst, who fails. And if he fails, at least he fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those timid, cold souls who never knew victory or defeat. See, some people will never know what it's like to be defeated. Because they never fought. They never tried. They were afraid of being a failure. You're a failure when you don't try. Afraid of passing out a track. Afraid to talk to somebody about the Lord and whether you're going to go when you die. So they're always critical of all those that do it. They probably didn't really get saved. I mean, they not probably really didn't get saved. They're just making up those numbers. And how are you doing? Those that get into the arena, that walk up to somebody and have somebody tell them where to get off and where to go, who mock them and make fun of them, who wad up that track and throw it back at them, those that say something mean and nasty and unkind to them, at least they're out there fighting a battle, and maybe they get whooped every once in a while, and maybe they don't win as many as they'd like to, but they were in the arena, and they were fighting. They were giving it all that they had. But there's always the critics of the world, even spiritual critics. Well, I wouldn't do it that way. And how would you do it? Well, I don't do it like that. How do you do it? 
And you'd be surprised there's a lot of people who never do anything, but they sit on the sidelines and they can always see what everybody else should have done. Aren't you glad when he makes this statement there in verse 15? He made a show of them openly. He came out of the grave and there were witnesses. He walked the streets of Jerusalem. They saw him over 500 at one time. And look at the last part of that. And you ought to underline this, triumphing over them in it. You see, we want to have triumph and we want to have the medals, but we don't want the battles. We want God to deliver us from every trial and tribulation when it won't work that away. Sometimes you have to be drugged through the mud, but at least you hang on and you keep trusting God. And like David says, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Triumphing. When it's all over with and we're all out of here, when we're standing at the judgment seat of Christ, what a wonderful time that will be. And when I stand at the judgment seat of Christ and he shows his plan for me, the plan of his life, and he had his way, and I see how I checked him here and I checked him there, and I would not yield my will. Will there be grief in my Savior's eyes? Grief, though he loves me still. He would have me rich, and I stand there poor, stripped of all but his grace, while memory runs like a haunted dream down the paths I cannot retrace. Lord, of the years that are left for me, I give them into thy hand to take me and break me, to mold me and make me into the pattern that thou hast planned. You and I one day will stand at the judgment seat of Christ and God's going to reward you according to the fight you put into the battle. Not the results, not the fight. Paul says, I have fought a good fight. I have kept the faith. I finished the race. And as we live our life, there's a lot that the devil would love to do to have victory in your life and my life. And hardships are going to come. But don't you ever stop serving God. Don't you quit and don't you give up. You keep trusting the Lord and he'll walk you through everything that you have to face. Trust him. Look up here. This hand represents you and me. This wallet represents sin. We all have sin on us. God, he loves us. He loves you. He hates what we do wrong, but he loves us. See, this is that old sinful nature that I have. That's why I do all those bad things. That's why you do them, because it's your nature. We're rebellious. We want our own way. But God says that he loves us and wants us to go to heaven. Go to heaven, we have to be perfect. We can't take that old sinful nature with us. If we did, we'd sin in heaven. So God says, no, you can't go. You've got to be perfect. Nobody's perfect. So how are we going to get to heaven? The wages of sin is death. We're all guilty. We're all condemned. God says you can't save yourself. You can't earn eternal life. You can't work your way to heaven. You'll never be good enough. Well, how can I get to heaven? Glad you asked. This hand represents Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. He came into this world because he loves us. Now, he hates what we do wrong, but he loves us. Our sins separates us from the Lord. So the Bible says Jesus Christ, who had no sin, he didn't have to die. But because he loved us, he took our sins. He took all of mine, took all of yours, paid for them on the cross 2,000 years ago, came back from the dead. He said that if you or me 
If we would believe that he did it for us, he would put this payment to our account. We get to go to heaven on what he did. You don't even earn it. You don't work for it. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And when you believe it, God says he would give you as a free gift everlasting life. And he says, these things have I written unto you that believe that he did this for you, that you would not perish. You'd have everlasting life. These things have written unto you that believe that you may know that you have eternal life. You can know that you're going to heaven. Now, if you have never trusted Christ as your Savior, you should. You never know when you're going to leave this world. If you have already trusted Christ as your Savior, you don't have to do it again. You can only have to, you only have to believe it once. And when Christ gives you He's a free gift, eternal life, He can't give it to you again. So if you've already trusted Christ as your Savior, you're going to heaven. But if you're here and you've never done that, that's what you need to do. Let's pray, shall we? With every head bowed and every eye closed. Now, I'm not going to have you come forward. I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm not going to have you stand up or point you out. But with heads bowed and eyes closed, I do want to pray for you. I really do. I love you and I care about you. But you may be here tonight and you're not positive of going to heaven when you die. Would you right now just talk to the Lord? You see, you don't make a mistake this way. Only the Lord knows your thoughts. So just talk to the Lord. Say, Lord, I don't understand it all. I know I've done things wrong. I know I'm a sinner. And I believe Jesus Christ died on that cross. I believe he died for me. And I, I will trust him as my only hope of going to heaven. So you're not trusting your good works. You're not trusting the church. not trusting a preacher or a priest or anybody else. I'm going to trust Christ and him alone. And friend, if you'll do that, God said he would save you. He would give you eternal life right now. He that believeth on me hath right now everlasting life. Will you believe it? So with head bowed and eyes closed, is there anyone at all say, yes, that made sense to me. And preacher, I will trust Christ right now as my Savior, as my only hope of going to heaven. And I'd like for you to pray for me. Would you just slip your hand up very quickly and put it right back down? Is there anyone at all? Anyone at all? If you've already trusted Christ as Savior, you don't have to do it again. But if you've never done so, would you do it right now? I'd like to have prayer for you. If you were to die right now, would you go to heaven? You say, well, I'm not sure. Then trust the Lord. And if you're going to trust the Lord, I'd like to know it because I care about you. Anyone before we close? Our Father, we thank you so much for all you've done for us. We're thankful for this time together. Bless each one for being here. Thank you, Lord, again for camp and for all those that worked at camp, labored. Many are tired. They're weak and worn. But, Father, they've been in the battle. And, Father, they deserve the right to be tired. It was a good tired. There's much that's been accomplished. We've been triumphant because of the strength that you've given us. We thank you for it. Bless each one for being here. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.